Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. And my co-host today is a real friend of the show. This is an important day. We're tying together both the the work of a of a new creative we're bringing in, like someone you guys haven't met yet on this show, and someone you guys have met on this show, and we will tie those threads together. The aforementioned co-host today, we will be discussing his newly out film, The Mirror Game. In addition, you may have seen his previous feature film, Bear With Us, or the web series he directed called Headless, which is a take on the Sleepy Hollow myth. William J. Stribling, welcome to the show, you and famed producer Marissa, who is the writer of The Mirror Game, you are the director, this is your work, your your work together we're talking about today, in addition to the tasty character that you brought for us to discuss. What else yeah. do the people need to know about you before we get started? Oh boy, what do they need to know? Um, they probably need to know that I am from Florida, but please don't hold that against me. Do you get that a lot? Do you get a lot of Florida guff or like you have to do the apology tour? Like, yeah. is, that a, is that a burden you bear? It's definitely a burden I bear, which has only gotten worse in the last, you know, year or so. Damn. Um, okay. Yeah. But I do have to also qualify it by saying I'm from the cool part of Florida, which does exist. It's called St. Petersburg. It's the Tampa Bay area. It's okay. very young and queer and hip, and uh, I I think it's it's like the little liberal haven of Florida. So if you if you are in Florida and you feel oppressed, uh, go to St. Petersburg, <laughs> and they will take you in. Young and queer and hip. It's really it's the ideal segue into <laughs> the film and the character today. Who have you brought for us to discuss? I I couldn't be more excited about this. So I have brought. Armand, who is a, one of the main characters of The Birdcage, played by Robin Williams. Armand, did you see what he just did? Hello, Valley, darling. What did he do? He blew a bubble with his gum while I was singing. He can't do that while I'm singing! Celsius, look, this may be a drag show, but it still has to be a good drag show. If possible, a great drag show. Yes, and just because you're 22 and hung doesn't mean you're... Let me do this, Albert. Fine, you're the director. Thank you. I, as as someone who's not like a performer, I know you get a lot of performers on on the show. Sure, I I struggled to find a specific character mm-hmm. that I was really drawn to, or you know that made me feel seen or was really impactful. And it was more about like the the film in general. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That said, as a child of the '90s, Robin Williams is obviously going to be a hero, and uh, you know there's something really special about his his character and his performance. So like that character I felt when I saw him as a kid, I don't know if I can say, oh, like uh, that character made me feel seen. But the whole film made Mm -hmm. me feel seen in in a Mm -hmm. way, like the sensibility of the film. And because he leads the film, I, I don't know. It just, it made sense, so... I did have, like, I do just have a note in my notes that just says Robin Williams. Because I figure we're around, like, the same millennial halo of time, which means Robin Williams was an extremely formative figure, I'm assuming, in both of our lives growing up. Yeah, absolutely. He was it for me as a kid. Like, uh, I was, like, three years old dressing up as Mrs. Doubtfire. You know, like, that was... (laughs) I was obs- I was obsessed with that with that film with him. I mean, there's that Aladdin, and you know, as I got older, going back and kind of discovering some other stuff that 
you know, I wasn't familiar with as a kid, like Good Morning Vietnam or yeah. um, The Fisher King. Is the Fisher yeah, King. I was going to so say, I remember when I saw The good. Fisher King in college for the oh first time. God. Yeah, I think I was in college when I saw that, too. And I was going down a Terry Gilliam rabbit hole, um, <laughs> which is always a, a thing I can recommend for people to do. Oh, um, absolutely. But yeah, like Robin Williams uh, was unbeatable unstoppable like he was just such a a force of nature and like i do think that he defines so much of my childhood which is weird but you know it's he was just there he was in everything he was good at everything and he was good at everything yeah he was good at everything now in the robin williams of it all did you see this in the 90s when it came out was this an, an early encounter with adult like robin williams doing something that wasn't like mostly for kids that wasn't like flubber or aladdin kind of thing absolutely so i'm gonna go on a a bit of a time traveling tangent for a second please let's go back to give you the context so as a child i uh, went to clown camp right loved clown camp started doing magic by the time i was like eight years old. Was this like serious clowning, like Cirque du Soleil clowning? No, no. It was serious. We took it seriously, but it was yeah. more Clownery about- is an art. Yeah, it is. It was more performance-based, like skits, physical comedy, magic. And, you know, this was Florida in the 90s. Um, so there was a lot of like juggling and uh, face painting and uh-huh. balloon animals and, and all that stuff. And by the time I, I was, I was, I was obsessed with it. I don't, from the age of like four or five, I was starting. And then by the time I was eight, the clowns that had taught me had started like hiring, hiring me to go on gigs with them. So Whoa. from, yeah, from like eight, like kind of through a lot of high school, I was like working professionally. As a, a working clown. As a as clown. As a fucking teenager. Yeah. Yeah. And we would. So I would spend a lot of time with these clowns. It was a mother-daughter duo. Uh, uh-huh. They were I- incredible, like like a second family to me. And I would spend oh. weekends, summers, like long extended periods of time just like living with them because uh-huh. we would have like multiple gigs in a weekend. Uh-huh. And, you know, like I, I was in heaven. Like I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Uh-huh. Uh, and they introduced me to so many films that I oh, definitely wow. should not have been watching at age eight. <laughs> so I, we, we would go and, you know, after, after a gig, like we'd go and get dinner. And then I think we would go to like Albertsons where they had a video rental aisle, you know, like yeah. they used to have those and yeah. rent whatever was like a new release of the time and just go back to their place and watch it before going to sleep. And I remember them being like, oh, my God, you've got to see this movie. You know, I was seven, eight, eight years old. So this was, you know, 97, 98. And I saw The Birdcage for the first time. No way to know, like, how much went over my head. You right, know? yeah. But I I don't remember being confused uh, by any of it. I remember yeah. it clicking in such a profound way. And it was immediately my favorite film. And it was... Uh, <laughs> That's and so cool. Now, as an adult who has been diagnosed with OCD, I understand, uh, and ADHD, I understand more my, like, obsessive uh, behavioral traits. And sure, I watched sure. that film so many times. Like, truly, 
could not tell you or even guess how many times I watched it. There was a time when I'm sure I knew it uh, back to front by heart. Uh, and then for whatever reason, hadn't seen it in years until the pandemic. And my wife mentioned she hadn't seen it ever. And that uh -huh. blew my mind. So I, I, uh, you know, sat her down and we watched it and it was amazing. And, and coming at it as an adult, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It's a phenomenal film. It really like, to, is. To be able, like, you watch that with someone now, it's like, we don't do queer joy from a studio film like this now. Yeah. Like, we don't, like, this is still so special. It's, and it works. Like, I don't, it's, it's just so, so good. But as a filmmaker now, I'm even going back and, you know, as a kid, I don't know who Elaine May is, but as an adult, I'm like, oh my <laughs> yeah. God, like, like, like Nichols and May, this is fantastic. Where I, every time I see the movie as an adult, it's like I'm a goldfish who's forgotten everything. I go, holy shit, Emmanuel Lubezki shot this movie? Like, yes! That's yes. crazy. Chivo, Chivo, known as Chivo to uh, the folks whose his name became known to them when he started winning Academy Every Awards Oscar. for doing cinematography yeah. <laughs> for um, movies like The Revenant. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, it, it, like, I, I saw the credits in this, I was like, even, like, it had been so long, I was like, dude, I forgot this was a Mike Nichols movie. Yeah. And then, like, his name came up in for the cinematographer. I was like, what? Yep. That's not the same guy. And I was like, yeah. sure enough. And in your to cinematographer, here he is. I mean, my God. And, and it makes sense. Like, go, knowing Mike Nichols' work now and knowing Chivo's work and Elaine May, like, all of it tracks so well and you see the way he blocks some of these scenes and the way that some of this is shot i mean the opening alone that's this ridiculous crane shot over the yeah. water yeah they stitch it together it's like two or three shots but it meant to feel like a big oneer that goes over the ocean yeah to the beach of miami over the street onto the street and into the nightclub like yeah this is this is a comedy like what are we, this is like a michael bay level you know <laughs> yeah. opening shot i mean talk You're about right. ways to get this into is a it comedy yeah, like, what, what have we just done yeah. is harrison ford gonna be on the other end of this shot like and there is no way to, someone? to fake this that well at the time like if it had been vfx or green screen or whatever you would have been able to tell but it yeah. is just a camera flying over the ocean and going straight <laughs> into this club in Miami. Uh, it's just, it's kind of mind blowing. And then it all makes sense when you see the level, of, like the caliber of human beings and artists that were involved in, in the making of the thing. And then, so Marissa and I, Marissa Flaxbart and I went to see a screening of it at the New Vidiots um, theater. Oh, wonderful. Yes. And it's the first time in my life I had seen the film with an audience or in a theater, right? Because like, yeah, I watched I've never it on seen a, it on a big screen. It was incredible. I mean, like visually, the, the film, I think, does not get nearly enough credit. But it was like a, a packed house. It was, I don't know, the energy was was perfect for it. It, it was like Father's Day weekend or something. And that's kind of how they justified like this <laughs> weird movie about fathers. Um, but man, it's it's fantastic. And then I went down another rabbit hole and realized that Sondheim had written some original pieces for the movie because mm -hmm. they had already, they had licensed some other things for like the rehearsal scene. Yeah. That's a, a Sondheim piece. What is this dream? I see 
Why does it seem so real to me? What if this dream turns out to be more than a dream? Fairy dust, fairy dust, fairy dust. Just like all of my favorite things, you know, now that I think I had collected, it's like, no, no, they were all there from the beginning of your life together right, in yeah. one place. Uh, <laughs> you, you just didn't know it yet, you know? It is, it feels like, and, and this, this has to be some of Florida's best PR. <laughs> because this mo- this makes a character out of South Beach yes. in a way that, like, when Albert, when Nathan Lane's character, like, we, we meet him uh, when he's about to take the stage reluctantly as Starina, the the star of the birdcage, and, and perform. But then the next morning, we see Albert has taken to the streets and is doing the morning shopping and walking down the street, strolling through the market, just, you know, kibitzing with everybody around. I was like... I remember being, like, when I was watching this, being little, being like, wherever he lives is the best place in the world. Like, everybody knows everybody, and it's so colorful, and he's eating pastries, (laughs) and their house is beautiful, and the colors are bright. We've got some nice fresh lobsters this morning, Albert. (laughs) No, thank you, Mr. Lopez, not today. The piglet is home. Uh (laughs) Would you like the cake delivered, Albert? Yes, please, and don't forget to write to my piglet from his auntie on it. You got it. Oh, thank you so much, <laughs> Mr. Boynton. I want to get back before he wakes up. I'm just going to try this oh. sample. Chocolate schnecken. Mm. The moments that you get in the environs around the place are so beautiful and they're so welcoming. Like, mm-hmm. this place makes this makes South Beach look like the only place you should want to be in the world. Yeah, and really disappointing if anyone sees this movie today and then goes to South Beach expecting it to be anything like it was in the birthday. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that that's uh, long, long gone. But they, they did shoot most of it in and around Miami, which I was okay. a little surprised by just the, the way that things work. Everything gets shot in L.A. or like... Marina Del yeah. Rey or something, you know, like it could yeah, yeah. easily been Venice or, or you know, some other L.A. city. But no, they, they took over a block in Miami and you, there's no other way to do it, really. You know, I, I, you're, you're right. The environment and the, the, the setting is just so perfect for this and it's impressive. I, I love it. Dad, what? look, it's not just one or two things, okay? I mean... It's everything, <laughs> okay? I mean, we are going to have to tone this down a little, all right? Just make it a little bit more like other people's homes. Oh, I see. So we need a total redecoration so we could be more like other people. I was wondering if, if you had the same experience that I've had this movie over time. How old were you when you realized that the villain of this movie is Val? Oh, The son of sure. Armand and Albert. Sure. Um, probably like high school age or so like maybe early college when i was watching it it is funny to realize that that is the man main antagonistic presence in in the movie he's kind of a an easy character to relate to at at first you know like yeah we're all embarrassed by our parents in one way or another you know but his uh embarrassment ends up going like way too far and it's almost like a reveal in the film itself that that the son is is an antagonist in the movie. 
you know? Yeah, and it, because, it, like, this is, like, the birdcage. For those who might not know, you know, we open on on the birdcage, a club in South Beach, and it's owned by Armand, and basically Armand and Albert. Our Albert uh, is the star act at the club. Armand runs it. Armand is Robin Williams. And... We meet them right as Val, Armand's son, is coming home because he has a big announcement to make to his dad, which is that he's getting married to a 17-year-old Callista Flockhart. (laughs) Like, the ages in this movie movie. are so 90s. His dad's like, you're too young to get married because he's 20. And he's like, no, I'm not. And then we cut to Callista Flockhart with her family, Gene Hackman. And, oh my God, Gene Hackman, who is just an all-time bastard, and Diane Weist. (laughs) And and she's like, mommy and daddy, I'm getting married. And she's, what does she say? I'm almost 18. Yeah. So we know she's 17. Are you crazy? It's out of the question. You can't get married. You're not even 18. Who is this boy, Barbie? When was the last time you saw him? Please don't call me Barbie. This afternoon at 2 o'clock. We've been sleeping together for a year. Oh, God. Has he been tested? Oh, Kevin. Yes, and so have I. Oh, what do you mean? You met him at college. You are 16 years old when you started hooking up with this guy. Your parents are right. This is a terrible idea. That's so funny. But that notwithstanding, <laughs> what once the uh, engagement is announced about the parents, Val tells his dad, Armand, like, what I need for you to do is... I her parents are really conservative. Her dad is basically a neocon senator from Ohio who's anti all gay rights and he's part of like a moral order coalition. His co-chair of which was just found dead in the bed of an underage sex worker who is also a black girl and that is the catastrophe of, of all catastrophes. Mind you guys, this is 1996. And so but they, he's like, Dad, we've got to have these people over for dinner, and I need you to pretend to be a straight conservative cultural attache to the nation of Greece to grease <laughs> the wheels for this wedding of ours. And you know, it is fizzy. agonizing as an adult to watch that proposition play out. Yeah. It, as as a grown up now. Oh, and yeah. producer Marissa with the key fact: Callista Flockhart is. 32 years old playing 17 in this movie. Such is the youthfulness of Callista Flockhart. Yeah, jeez. Dan Futterman is like a real 90s cutie. And like you said, there's like something like all our parents are annoying. But there's like a persistent disdain that Val, in a really petulant child, convincing way, wears on his face the entire movie. There's such contempt for the lack of what he sees as like a lack of flexibility among his parents, Armin and Albert. I want to reach through the screen and (laughs) throttle this goddamn kid. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. And the, the way that he's so casually like hires a team of people to move out all the furniture. And it's like, he's, he's really investing time and energy and money into this project in a way that goes way beyond the, Hey, can I ask you a simple favor? It is. (laughs) (laughs) He takes over and it's the, the scene where he and Robin Williams are kind of arguing the the makeup scene where he like rubs his face and then puts the makeup on the wall. Like I, you just want to like applaud Robin Williams at the end of that scene. It's such oh. such a a brilliant like mic drop moment. Yes, I wear foundation. Yes, I live with a man. Yes, I'm a middle aged fag. 
But I know who I am, Val. Took me 20 years to get here, and I'm not gonna let some idiot senator destroy that. Fuck the senator. I don't give a damn what he thinks. The heart of the film is all right there in that scene. So if you had any, you know, trepidations or worries about, you know, where the the artists are coming from making this, you're like, okay, no, we're there. They're on the right side of of history and this thing, and uh, we, we can trust. We can trust that this is in in good hands. This this story. This is, I feel like it can't be stressed enough that this movie comes out in 1996. This is a Michael Nichols movie. This is a studio film. This makes over $185 million worldwide in 1996. This is Robin Williams playing a gay man. This is like at a time too when, you know, new queer cinema pops up a lot of this podcast, sort of a name check thing. Like this is what I think, I feel like what we have here is like almost this bleed of like new queer cinema has been playing out over the early 90s. And then the mainstream is then able to adapt to the fact that the edges have pushed what is possible on screen further and further. And so then you have a movie like The Birdcage that can exist at a massive box office level with one of the biggest stars in the world at the time in Robin Williams and Nathan Lane not yet out playing a completely over-the-top drag performance as Albert. And it's been kind of going around recently on Twitter, like clips of Robin Williams and a news piece of Robin Williams, like how he protected Nathan Lane from being outed on that press tour when journalists pressed him asking about his sexuality and, and Robin Williams kind of put himself in front wow. of him like a human shield oh, wow. and distract away from those questions because he knew he wasn't ready to come out yet. They're Were you afraid of director. taking that role and being like typecast and people forever saying, are you, are you not? Is he, is he, honey? I don't know. Um, <laughs> Girl, you changed just in the middle of that sentence. <laughs> I don't know. I'm telling you. Mm. <laughs> Don't make me come out there. (laughs) So, what was the question? For this kind of movie to go that huge at the time, that feels... That would feel revolutionary by today's standards. Like, sorry, Billy Eichner wishes bros like blew up like the birdcage mm-hmm. did. But like, and in 1996, when we have something like this and Tu Wong Fu, yeah. thanks for everything Julie Newmar with two of the biggest action stars of the day yeah. in Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes, these mask heroes playing gorgeous drag queens for serious, mm-hmm. for sincerity, mm-hmm. like completely sincerely. Like, what a fascinating time the mid-90s is for this spillover of, like, revolutionary queer cinema feels like helping the tide rise to lift all the boats at a broader studio level. I I wonder, I I talk about this a lot with friends, I wonder what happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, because something shifted. Like, my childhood was defined, I think, a lot by movies like The Birdcage and... uh, you know, like, you know, Tu Wong Fu, like there, there's a lot of great queer cinema, but also a lot of like, like black movie stars that I there, grew no, up. A, I mean, black cinema is having a heyday with, at, at the same like, time. With, you know, going in from straight out of Compton and films sure. like uh, the films of the Wayans brothers with Keenan yeah. Ivory Wayans and Damon Wayans, both making their own movies and films like set it off. Like there is a black cinema movement that's happening at this time that almost feels like it's like, hey, guys, before they figure out how to turn it off, like, let's turn up the tap as far as we can and just pour out as much creative output as as, as is possible. Yeah, no, you're you're so right. I mean, the, the movie stars, when like when I think of growing up, I'm like, OK, obviously, Robin Williams, number one. But then 
I mean, Whoopi Will, Goldberg. Will Smith, Whoopi Goldberg, Chris Rock was a movie star, people. Like, Chris yep. Rock, like, starred Chris in- Chris Rock, Chris Tucker. Chris Tucker. Martin Lawrence was my hero as a kid. You know, he did- Queen Latifah, Queen Jada Latifah. Pinkett Smith. Uh-huh. So then what happened? Like, what, <laughs> what happened in, like, the early 2000s that shifted us so far away that now we're in 2023 and we're, like, fighting and clawing to get- you know, you know, diverse films made like what? Like I, I, I'm like, wait a minute. Like what? I grew up on diverse films. I grew up on like black movie stars and queer films. And like, like what happened? Well, and I feel like I feel like it's a sort of mirroring of how in the late 60s, in 67, you have the end of the production code. You have the end of the Hayes Code. And from mm-hmm. that, you have this explosion of gay cinema and sort of alternative cinema and, and, and auteurs rising in the late 60s and 70s, kind of defining movie stardom and auteurism I think as we understand it today mm-hmm. and then you also you have like reckless things happening with all of John Waters and that coterie of freaks and adaptations by Gore Vidal and Rocky Horror Picture Show and you know beyond the valley of the dolls just this sort of like sex and debauchery and experimentalism and a rowdiness of sort of like like artistic activism just sort of bursting onto the scene and then you get into the early 80s and you have Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. and you have the moral majority mm-hmm. and you have like slasher movies that start to reflect like the sin hunting nature of sort of the government presiding over the people that is like you know saying things like fucking welfare queens and enforcing these hideous like reforming conservatism around the celebrity figure that is Ronald Reagan and you know go Wall Street and fuck the gays kind of situation and then in the midst of that too you have the onset of the AIDS crisis Mm -hmm. and so then you have the 90s in a reaction to that that sort of punch back and say no like we cannot be relegated to the shadows anymore and then you have 9-11 and you have this you have this rise of like extremely binary homo nationalism that says you are us or you are them and you are straight or you are bad and everything sort of clamps down and becomes extremely homogenized again because we are rallying around the flag and Disney's doing PSAs about what it means to be an American with Shia LaBeouf reading original poetry about patriotism so like Fuck, man. The, uh, it was a cultural reset in the worst way. You're right. I'm glad I asked because that's the, the 9-11 of it all isn't something I'd really taken into consideration. It's time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with Will and more talk about The Birdcage, along with its director, the great Mike Nichols. Then some big feeling scene alum news, Chris Landon scoring Scream 7 as its new director. You there. Have you considered listening to the Beef and Dairy Network, an award-winning comedy show in the form of a newsletter podcast for the beef and dairy industries? Well, maybe you should. And why don't you try our most recent episode, episode 99, which features American man Paul F. Tompkins playing Queen Elizabeth II's former personal beef sommelier. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and I laying on the floor of her bedroom, uh, just helplessly laughing till tears run down our faces as corgis are jumping on us, over us, licking us. That is a day that I will treasure forever until I am executed. Find the show at MaximumFun.org. I hope there's beef in heaven. Hey there, beautiful people. I'm Jarrett Hill. And I'm Trayvon Anderson. And we want to know, have you ever had mixed feelings about the things that you love? Ooh, maybe about the things that you hate? 
then Fantai is the show for you. Fantai is the podcast for all those complex and complicado conversations about the gray areas in our lives. You might have conflicting feelings about Kamala Harris or mm-hmm. propaganda or mm-hmm. interracial friending. Mm-hmm. That's all right, because we do too. And we get into it every single Thursday. Catch this Slay Worthy audio at MaximumFun.org. That's MaximumFun.org slash Fantai. That's F-A-N-T-I. Come get all this good good. Or this great great. Welcome back to Feeling Scene. I'm talking today with director William J. Stripling. His latest film is The Mirror Game, and other recent credits include the shipwrecked series Headless, A Sleepy Hollow Story, and the horror comedy Bear With Us. We're talking about The Birdcage from 1996, so let's get back into it. As a filmmaker, do you think much about the Mike Nichols aspect of this film? And like within this incredible filmography spanning a half century that he had... Yes, um, I'm a huge Mike Nichols fan. I'm, I grew up doing a lot of theater as well as magic and, and mm. clowning, and then, um, you know, got I was fortunate enough to see some Mike Nichols directed shows in in New York. Um, so he's just been a, a hero of mine as a director for so long, and, and mm-hmm. I always wanted to be you know, like him in that he was able to do a lot with his comedy, uh, you know, and the comedy was never frivolous or, or throwaway. It was always really smart, but he is so loved by actors, like actors love working mm-hmm. with him. And then you see the birdcage and there's a scene early on in the film. I, I timed it earlier today. It's one shot. It's like three minutes long and it's just beautifully mm-hmm. cor- they're in the kitchen it's like the first morning after val shows up they're yes. in the kitchen it's a three minute is sitting just wonder. on an exercise bike reading the paper <sighs> it's it's so so good you look awful what's wrong i was getting married don't be silly i got a pork roast for dinner i wanted to get filet mignons but they're so expensive married what do you mean married you know what i mean I don't understand. Yes, you do. No. And there's there's several like long takes in in the film, and you know that's one of his one of his things, like the trust he puts in actors and and his ability to choreograph a scene and and uh, you know comedy is so so difficult. I I feel like most people don't realize how truly like mesmerizingly challenging comedy is to pull off. Mm-hmm. There's just no safety net. You know, like if a joke doesn't <laughs> land, there's you're just falling flat on your face in front of everybody. Like there's yeah. you can't hide anything like you're as a filmmaker, you are extremely vulnerable when you're doing comedy, which I think is a lot of why comedies are harder to make today. Like why we just get mm. fewer of them. Uh, they're they're just tough. You know, like the bar is set so high and there's an expectation and like i said you're vulnerable if you if you miss it's a it's a huge fail so to see someone you know at this point in his career in 96 um just show up and and dominate every scene is masterfully mm-hmm. crafted and the pacing and the punchlines and he leaves room for the actors to play I, I did some like minor research and it seemed like they would get everything at least once um mm-hmm. you know by the script and then 
they would be given permission to improvise or or run with certain scenes. And I have to believe the famous like dance variety presentation <laughs> that Robin Williams gives on the stage of the club. Like that's that's got to be at least a little bit of Robin Williams just bringing the bringing the heat it that he knows he's got. Be. It has to Twyla, be. Twyla, Twyla. What about me? What do I do? Do I just stand here like an object? No. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. All right, just work on that. I'll be right back. It's looking wonderful, though. But it also, to me, like now, I'm, I have so much respect for Robin Williams because that was purely improvised or his idea probably founded in rehearsal and he knows all of those choreographers like he's yeah like robin williams is at the person is fully on board and able to appreciate all of the work of those famous choreographers he's he's mentioning so it's it's there's nothing inauthentic about the 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 moment the scene the performance like it is coming from someone who loves and appreciates and can demonstrate and like a, a, yeah. I can see him doing that on stage like for all we know that was part of a bit he was doing you know in his in his like stand up act it, seriously it, yeah cuz it, it lo- that moment looks like the frenetic madness yeah. that I have seen in his stand up special like that that just like suddenly he's a hurricane yes. on stage yes and for the rest of the movie he's so um I, I think restrained in a in a really satisfying way like you feel that that person is is kind of being like repressed or or kind of yeah. bottled up in a way so to to take that character and to put upon to him all of the you know the kind of narrative weight of the the film and all of the responsibility it's it's really engaging like it's a he's a really great protagonist he's put upon but he's also so smart loving enthusiastic and you do feel that that he even he isn't able to like be his his true self all the time and mm-hmm. you get these little pops these little bursts of it and it's just it's like it's magic to watch i mean speaking of like long like scenes that are just allowed to unfold the the kitchen chaos uh, scene yes. where it's all it's they they like val and armin think it's all coming apart in the meeting between the keelys and the, the coleman coleman's uh-huh. goldmans <laughs> Albert has donned full drag and is playing a conservative housewife. Armand has gone into the kitchen. He, he's just berating Agador for the <laughs> soup that he made and learns that he doesn't even have an entree. And he's just cursing. He's, God damn it. God damn it. And Agador is breaking down. Val comes in. He's like chugging, cooking sherry straight out of the bottle. Robin Williams is having an anxiety attack. He's screaming at Agador. Val's falling apart. Dad, you've got to get in there. Everything is going to hell. He didn't make an entree. What? What, what? what do you? What do you, you mean? We just have soup? Your peasant soup is an entree. It's like a stew. What do you think I put so much eating for? Shut up! Here's a note for Catherine. Go put it on the downstairs door. I've got to get back there before they eat enough to see the bottom of the bowl. Any major things to do? You don't give me no time to jump. Shut up! It's okay. We're all right. It's fine. Just shut up, goddamn you! It's all right. Stop crying, goddamn you! What are you standing there for? Go, go! Should be here in a minute. Go! Damn it! Fuck the shrimp! Robin Williams, like, falls down with the soup as he's exiting the kitchen. It's like, how did this... Like, you watch... It's one of those things where, like, 
you can't but take it for granted as a viewer that just like this just happens when you make movies because this is what movies are but then you think about it for even five minutes if you've watched somebody shoot a movie and you're like this is unbelievably intricate and feels impossible yeah yeah that second fall because uh hank azaria falls early in the scene i think (laughs) just to the runner with him not not being good in shoes and, yeah. <laughs> and I swear Robin Williams falling is is not planned at the end there. Like, I, I completely believe you. Yeah, it can't it can't be like you can see them spill some of the soup earlier and it's so chaotic. But when you set when you're Mike Nichols, when you're creating this kind of environment and this kind of tone on a set, you know, your actors aren't going to break when something happens, when they slip and fall. They're going to stay in it and they're all pros and they know in that moment deep inside them that like this is the take like this is the one that's going to make it to screen like there's you know you get these little gifts from the filmmaking gods sometimes on set and that is that's one of them like one of these iconic another like long kind of oneer of a scene too just yeah the camera is kind of sitting back and it's very theatrical you know the entrances and exits it's it's french yes it's, yes it's french farce literally like the source material you know like that we're <laughs> yes yes it's uh it's like in its purest form so it is nice to see that respected too in a like an american you know hollywood adaptation of this yeah like French stage musical it, it is it's nice for the like the essence of it to still be there it still feels like a French stage musical at its yeah like, on, on the DNA level um you know they didn't just try and like Hollywood it up like it if the you, entire uh, process of of Armand teaching Albert to comport himself like a man yeah Like that entire thing playing out of the cafe, the piercing of the toast, the Uh, walking like John Wayne. Like, uh, get the goddamn pinky down. All right, make your fingers like iron. All right, yeah, and stop trembling. Hold the knife boldly and strength. I pierced the toast. So what? The important thing to remember is not to go to pieces when that happens. You have to react like a man, calmly. You have to say to yourself, Albert. You pierced the toast. So what? It's not the end of your life. Try another one. Albert, you pierced the toast. So what? You're right. There's no need to get hysterical. All I have to remember is I I can always get more toast. That's the spirit. Yes. All right, let's try walking. This is farce. This is amazing. It really is. It it really... And then the punchline of that scene of like, I I just didn't realize John Wayne walked (laughs) like that. (laughs) No, that was... That was perfect. I just yeah. I didn't realize John Wayne walk like that. <laughs> Nathan Lane's little howdy, man. Yeah. <laughs> and that extra, uh, Marissa and I were talking about this. That extra really, we get our money's worth from from her. She's fantastic. Like, I, where do you find the? I, I hope she's like the mother of someone on the crew or something. She's so unfazed, and that's kind of like like what you were saying earlier, and and part of the. I think, you know, the feeling scene of it for for me and um, the comfort that is there in the film, like these people dressing up as women in South Beach, like no one is judging them. Like everyone, it's such a, it's a safe place to be different. Yeah, the Keeleys are the outsiders. The Keeleys are the outsiders. They look like it, they feel like it, they talk like it. This is not their place. Yeah, no, and that... you know, which it's it's funny thinking of Florida now because Florida is certainly not uh, the safest place for for queer people uh, anymore. But in the fantasy of that film, like there there is really this this comfort of the location, but also like who didn't want 
Armand, like Robin Williams and Nathan Lane to be their parents. <laughs> you oh my know? God. Like who, who didn't want that? Uh, it's it, it just like the, the most supportive individuals and, you know, Val takes it for granted. I, I don't know. It's, there's something just uh, like cozy and safe and warm and fuzzy about it. And like, and the home just is like, it's so bright. Like that scene in the kitchen, like you were talking about, it's so, it's so filled with sunshine Yeah. and the, and the walls are like yellow yes. and it's just, oh my God, why wouldn't you want to eat breakfast in there every day of your life? <laughs> when I came home from the, the screening with Marissa, I told my wife, I'm like, I think we have to get an exercise bike for our kitchen. I just think it, it needs, <laughs> that's what our kitchen, our kitchen is small, but so is theirs. It's uh yeah. <laughs> So is yeah. theirs. We can maximize our kitchen. Look at the birdcage. They fit four people in there and an exercise bike. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. I What I wonder now then is, you know, watching this, having this like imprint on you when you're young. And like you said, you're like what you know now about like OCD and your ADHD and like pouring over this movie over and over again. For one to go on to become a filmmaker themselves, what is the role that one of those source texts plays for you as a creative? Like, when you watch something that much, it just, like, burns its way into your brain. So, like, what is what is that do to just, like, absorb creative directorial possibility when one day you're going to go on to do that yourself? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think because that was imprinted on me so so young and yeah. established as kind of the norm you know this was hollywood like this was mainstream like you said like there was nothing like underground about this so you know like on a subconscious level you're just taking it uh, for for what it is and going oh this is this is totally normal and i don't know if i was predisposed to like these chaotic types of ensemble films or you know, uh, because I was watching them so young, I then went on to enjoy that in, in my own work. Uh, chicken or the egg, who who knows? But I do right. think growing up idolizing gay characters, uh, growing up idolizing Nathan Lane, you know, like a yeah. seven-year-old who thinks that Nathan Lane is a superstar has yeah. a far <laughs> better chance at being a creative individual going forward <laughs> and probably less of a chance of being a, a horrible human being. You know, like all, if you have kids and you're listening, it, you know, give them as much Nathan Lane at a young age. <laughs> uh, the, so I, I do think it, you know, it might've primed my sensibilities. The, the film you mentioned at the top, Bear With Us, is 100% a farce. Like it is um, a chaotic uh, French farce, like in its, in its style. Uh, and, I, I, that's kind of my favorite type of comedy that unfortunately doesn't get made anymore. So I feel a bit of a responsibility to kind of, you know, make them a, again. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like I said, they're really, really difficult to pull off. There's so many moving pieces. There's no safety net. You're just, um, you know, kind of having to rely on the writing and the, and the performance of it all. But it, it's, it's something that I, I wish that we had more of. Like and again, I, I think that you know, loving Nathan Lane and um, Mike Nichols definitely supported, and Christine Baranski. Like we're not even talking about oh. like stage. I, so this segue to Christine Baranski, I saw her um, 
several times on Broadway in a production of Boeing mm-hmm. Boeing, which I've never mm-hmm. seen the film, but um, it's a it's a classic French farce as well. It's a it's translated, I, I believe, from you know a, a text written in the '60s. At the time, I did not know who this person was who starred in the play, but it was Mark Rylance, it, it turns out. So Christine oh, Baranski, okay. Mark Rylance. Um, great, I saw Greg Gurman, who had replaced Bradley Whitford, but it, it was this, like, you, you're sitting there in, in one location. There's, like, three doors. It is uh, It's absolutely incredible. Um, and it was so effective, you know? Like, their farce, when done well, is just... Like you're on the seat of you're on the edge of your seat in the same mm-hmm. way that you are watching a horror film or a, <laughs> yeah. a thriller. The stakes are so high for the characters and yet so low for the grand scheme of things that there's yeah, that, yeah. Like, in that tension. There's something really, really fun and and special and um, yeah. I want I want more I want more things like that. I want more comedies of that mode. Well, I guess like to, since we haven't been able to touch on it yet, which is how the conversation's gone. For my for my final question, I will ask you then to tell us a bit. Tell us about the Mirror Game. Oh, sure. And tell us about how people can find the Mirror Game or when they can find the Mirror Game. Yeah. So the Mirror Game is uh, a film that that I, I made that was written by Marissa Flaxbart, who, who works on yes. on this show, and it was kind of born out of the pandemic situation of it all like in 2020 i'd had a a couple of other features that were larger scale get get put on hold for obvious Mm. reasons but it was probably august of 2020 that i was just like absolutely going out of my mind and needed to (laughs) work on something creative and you know it takes a long time to write screenplays and to make them any good and thinking well you know, like COVID precautions, SAG, like it's a nightmare. I just done like a commercial thing and it was just like, oh, this is horrible. Like I don't, I, do I even want to be on set anymore? So yeah. I, I kind of challenged myself to to think of how to design a feature film that could be done cheaply, safely, quickly, and something that, you know, we would enjoy working on. And I remembered, um, you know, about a year prior having seen Marissa's stage play mm-hmm. uh, called uh, A Mere Conception. And I, I say stage play, though it was not performed on a stage. It was done site-specific with a theater company in L.A. So the setting is a hotel room, and the, mm. the theater company, you know, kind of partnered with different hotels to put on productions of the show. And you would mm. go in with, I don't know, 13 or, or 14 other audience members seated in a hotel room, a real hotel room. And this mm-hmm. play would just unfold in front of you for, oh, wow. you know, an hour and 15 minutes or so. And... It was wonderful. I'd seen a table read of it before seeing the actual production. And, you know, I had the idea of, well, we could try and adapt that into uh, a movie. It's two characters, Mm -hmm. one location. And then, of course, I got a little ambitious and crazy and was like, well, what if we did it in like four nights? Like, what if we went to (laughs) Las Vegas? Like, talk about doing something cheaply. Vegas hotel rooms are as cheap as they come. Yep. What if we just shot it for real and like snuck in the gear and we all stayed in hotel rooms in the same floor and you know the 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 idea kind of grew from there. Marissa was game for it. We uh, I brought on another producer and you know we spent basically no money you know beyond what it cost to stay there and film and then pay yeah. pay the cast and crew. Yeah, like it was an experiment of of sorts. Like, can we go out and make this little 
you know, secret feature film in, in Vegas. And uh, so the film is, it's, it's just, it's a two hander. There is a third character that comes in very, very briefly early on in the movie, but it's about uh, childhood friends that happen to end up in Vegas on the same weekend. And they show up to this room kind of under the guise of catching up after not seeing each other for a long time. But they, you know, as it turns out, they each have ulterior motives, so to speak. And I, I won't yeah. say anything beyond that, but um, I'm, I'm really proud of the film. Like we had a nice long fest- festival run. Honestly, you know? it's really good. Thank you. Thank you. It's really good. <laughs> I was wrapped. I'm glad. From beginning to end, I wanted to know what was going to happen to these people. I wanted to keep spending time with them. I hated them when yes. I feel like I was, well, I hated him sure. when I was supposed to hate sure. him. <laughs> I was fully on board with her. Um, I really liked it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it, it, we did it uh, on such a small scale that that we were all like, listen, if this sucks, we just won't tell anybody about it. And it'll, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like. You guys, should we just keep this in the can, yeah. actually? Like, I'm through a, I'm through a first cut. I'm through a rough cut of this. And it turns out this was a bad idea. But like, let's work together again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think I was fully prepared for that reality uh, had, had it come to that. But, uh, you know, on, in rehearsals on set, it was really clear that that we had something cool and uh you know it's uh, i'm still shocked a little bit that we that we pulled it off the the way we did <laughs> you know kind of pre-vaccine in the pandemic we did it like fully to to the sag code of the time yeah. and no one got sick no one you know uh no one got covid we had we had kind of a a blast and uh, I'm excited that the movie's out now. Like it's it's been a year doing film festivals, which was fun just because I mean indie movies, especially of our tiny tiny scale, they just don't yep. get theatrical releases anymore. So to see it in a yep. in a you know proper movie theater with an audience, you usually have to go the festival route. Uh, and yep. now you know we got picked up by a distributor, and it's uh, currently like r- rentable, purchasable on VOD, and also if you don't mind watching ads, you can watch it on on Tubi. And uh, it'll continue rolling out on another streaming service. Tubi is the service of the people. We love Tubi yeah. here. And we love Tubi and we love independent cinema. Yes. So you can combine feeling scenes loves, two shared loves, everybody. And you can support the mirror game and producer Marissa yeah. and William J. Stribling right now. Please do. Uh, we would love for you to, to take a look at it. It's 87 minutes that you'll never get back. And... <laughs> Uh, it really, some like special performances. That uh, Taya Pat, who stars in the movie, is just so watchable, and uh, I can't wait to work with her again. Well, that we're, we're sending people off with the mirror game, and thank you, William J. Stribling, for being with us today. I truly appreciate you coming on and talking about one of my favorite movies ever. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Will Stribling. As he mentioned, The Mirror Game is available to watch for free, for free on Tubi, or you can rent or buy it from YouTube movies, Google Play, Amazon, you know the places. Headless is also streaming uh, his web series in its entirety on YouTube. And now, my one quick little thing before we go, we love to update you guys on what is going on with guests of Feeling Seen Past. And one of uh, one of the, the jewels in our crown here, I would say, is director Christopher Landon, who incredibly came on 
and talked about his life growing up as a child of the industry uh, through the movie Mommy Dearest, telling a really feeling scene greatest hit story about seeing Faye Dunaway in the lobby of a hotel. Well, guess what, guys? Big movie news for us and for Chris Landon. He will direct Scream 7. Scream 7 is now, it's, 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 I mean, I think it was probably official before, like, they, we definitely were not ending this at 6, like, I think we all know that, but 7 is happening with the director of Freaky and Happy Death Days 1 and 2, uh, and he is taking over from the, uh, the, the pair of filmmakers who brought you 5 and 6, Matt Bettinelli Open and Tyler Gillette. They broke out onto the scene as the, uh, filmmaking collective Radio Silence with their producer, Chad Vilela. The three of them together will act as executive producers with, uh, Christopher Landon. He's now at the helm. And, Listen, I feel good about this. I'm I'm a fan of the man. I'm a fan of his films. Uh, he is he is such um he is such a craftsman at putting a a beautiful uh, sentimental beating heart in the midst of uh, genre horror comedy madness. Um, and I really I really trust him with our core four to take over duties, stewarding them through their next harrowing collective adventure uh, up against I gotta assume it's Ghostface right so Jenna Ortega Melissa Barrera Mason Gooding uh and Jasmine Savoy Brown also an alum of this pod are now under the under the charge under the trusted leadership of Christopher Landon I'm super psyched about this I, I just think this is fun news it's nice to you know you have that moment of like you know you want to see a new filmmaker come in and really make their mark and get a chance but also, like, when you see uh, a queer filmmaker just keep getting more and better opportunities and become more well-known and more recognized for their obvious achievement and skill, like, that's really exciting, too. And it's really neat to see Christopher Landon, whether it's original horror or it is incredibly established legendary IP like Scream. And he was also not too long ago attached to an arachnophobia remake. Um, it's, it's really cool to see someone who, um, seems to be just a decent and wonderful individual, uh, who is incredibly good at his job, become one of the most sought after, um, genre filmmakers kind of of the 21st century. Like that, that's, that's pretty spectacular. So congratulations to Christopher Landon and congratulations to us on this news. That is the sad time where I have to say that's our show. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Feeling Scene Pod or send us an email at feelingscene at maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jorcrew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun.